Hi, welcome to North Star Big Book. This is episode 19. We are, I'm Carly Recovered Alcoholic. We are on We Agnostics. I have a story to tell about this. I always have stories to tell, but... So when I first actually started reading the big book, I said, oh, I can skip chapter four because I believe in God and I don't need to read about agnostics, um, which is like, ha, 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 you'll hear. Um, and the other thing is, I my parents are both sober. They got sober um, when I was 13 and I was 12 when I started drinking. And I was introduced to AA and I was around AA. When I was when I got sober, they were seven years sober. And so I was brand new sober. We were on a family reunion in Atlantic City. It was like the worst of our reunions ever. The sleeping arrangements were horrible. People were sick. Everyone was unhappy. And I needed to go to a meeting. And I was 20, um, which is old enough to do things by myself. But when my dad's around, he doesn't like me to do things by myself because he thinks I'm like six. And I said, I'm going to go to a meeting. And I like picked a random meeting. I had no idea where I was. And my dad refused to let me go by myself. And because I was like still like a hippie in my mind and free spirited, I decided I wanted to go to the meeting without shoes. So we were fighting leaving our hotel that why aren't I wearing shoes? And I was like, I don't have to wear shoes. You know, not everyone has to wear shoes all the time. And the meeting that I chose, of course, was in like a really dangerous neighborhood and there was broken glass everywhere. So my dad gave me one of his shoes. He had walking pneumonia. He gave me one of his shoes. He walked with one shoe on and one shoe off, and I walked and hopped in his one shoe. Um, When we got to the meeting, we probably looked like crazy people, and they were reading We Agnostics, and I was like, oh, gosh, this is ridiculous. I have nothing. This is boring. And they got to the page 50, and it was my turn to read. And when we read, I'm going to just jump here for a second and we'll come back to it. It was my turn to read. I was in theater, so I was excited that I was going to get to use my voice. And I I read, instead, we looked at the human defects of these people and sometimes used their shortcomings as a basis of wholesale condemnation. We talked of intolerance while we were intolerant ourselves. And then this is a sentence that blew me away. We missed the reality and the beauty of the forest because we were diverted by the ugliness of some of its trees. And it was like, it was a spiritual experience. I had a spiritual experience. It was a little, for me, they've always been little teeny moments where I'm blown away. The top of my head opens up and information that was never there is now there in my mind and I cannot avoid it. And I heard and I felt and I experienced that sentence, that idea that I could never see the beauty of the forest because I was always diverted by the ugliness of some of its trees. I realized that I had spent as much of my life as I could possibly remember believing that, thinking that, focusing on that. My perspective was always about all the yuck and how horrible this is. I literally walked around looking at the ground. And it wasn't until I got sober that I walked around and I looked around and I was like, wow, there's seasons and they're beautiful. And when I read this sentence at that meeting with one shoe on, it broke me open. I realized that I was not seeing all the the beauty that was in the world. And it put me on the path that I'm on now, which is I'm a seeker of beauty and of meaning and of real. And it just, whenever I read We Agnostics, I get excited. So let's go to the beginning of page 44. Before we even begin, I want to identify on the top of the page the kind of believers there are. So we're going to identify three types of believers 
an agnostic means, I wrote on the side next to the big chapter definition, we agnostics, I wrote the word agnostic, I split it up, I wrote the letters A-G, and that means without, A-G means without, and then underneath that I wrote the word gnostic, N-O-S-T-I-C, and that means knowledge. So an agnostic is one without knowledge. And I wrote above we agnostics, I wrote doesn't use power. Doesn't use power. So we're going to identify that way top of the page, I wrote the word agnostic again, and I wrote person who believes but doesn't rely on power. So it can be someone who believes it. It could also be someone who de- doesn't know if they believe. They don't understand it, but they definitely don't rely on, on, a, on a higher power in any way. Whether they believe or not believe, they don't rely on it. They don't have enough information to rely on it. An atheist is the next word, A-T-H-E-I-S-T, is a person who says God does not exist. They believe, they actually have a belief in the non-existence of God. They strongly believe that that either there is no God or you cannot prove it, therefore there is none to them. And that person believes and they believe in no God and therefore they rely solely on themselves. The third type, I wrote true believer. This is the third type of, of a believer. And I wrote believes in a power. So they believe in in a power, whether it's God, Allah, Jesus, whatever, believes in a power, makes a decision. So based on their belief, they make a decision based on the belief that their higher power is going to have them and then sees the power working in their life. So they believe in their higher power. They make decisions based on that their higher power is going to have them no matter what. And then they can look into their life and look back at their life and see God's with me right now, or my higher power is with me. I've, I'm not alone. I, I can see how this is all here. The reason why I didn't want to read We Agnostics when I first saw it was I believed in God. Um, I didn't have a relationship with God. The only time I ever talked to God when I was drinking was when I was really sick in the bathroom or about to get in a lot of trouble, and I begged God for help. It was kind of like the Santa Claus God or the foxhole prayers. Um, what... I didn't rely on my higher power and I didn't use my higher power for anything other than when I was in trouble. And we didn't have a relationship, mostly because I didn't believe that God wanted to have anything to do with me because of the way I lived my life. The reason why I didn't want to read this chapter was once I got sober, I thought I had a relationship with God and I was insulted by the idea that I would need to read about someone who doesn't rely on their God. What I found out through reading this chapter and through living this and practicing these principles in all my affairs is I behave like an agnostic about 75 to 85% of every single day on a regular basis. I want you to know that I have a lot of tattoos. One of them is on my left arm and it says, God has you. And even with that tattooed to my skin, I forget. I forget, I forget, I forget. I've had evidence upon evidence for the last 19 years that God has you, that there's never going to be a time that God's not going to give me what I need, and yet I still don't remember, which is why one of my sponsors calls me Dory from Finding Nemo because I literally forget all day long that God has me. And I walk around, actually I run around like a chicken with her head cut off trying to manage my own life 
forgetting that I have God. And then I do a 10 step and the 10 step makes me pause. It brings me back to the moment. I start with my resentment and my fears, usually my fears. And in my dishonesty and my selfishness, when I look at that, I see that I'm not relying on God. I'm forgetting that God exists and I'm not behaving like a believer. I am a true believer whenever I'm taking someone through the big book, whenever we're doing step work, whenever I'm leading, whenever I'm doing a podcast, whenever someone I love is struggling with their spirituality, whenever someone I love is struggling with something in their life, then the true believer in me comes out and I can calm them down and I can communicate to them my beliefs, which I really do have. I just forget all the time. So actually, this is one of the most appropriate chapters for me. The first paragraph, I bracketed and underlined the entire paragraph. This is where I take every single person who does not know if they're an alcoholic. So if we're about to sit down and we go through the first um, three steps, every single time I sit down with someone, I get to this page because this is where we find out our truth. I also can take somebody that I've never met who doesn't know if they're an alcoholic or not, just bring them to this paragraph without explaining very much, and they can determine if they're an alcoholic or not. So we'll get there in a minute. In the preceding chapters, you have learned something of alcoholism. We hope that's the first 100 men and women. We have made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. So that sentence tells me there is a distinction. Someone who is an alcoholic and someone who is a non-alcoholic are different. I wrote in big letters on the side, distinction, and then I wrote the alcoholic, and I made an arrow next to this next sentence, like, you know, vacancy. Like, so this is the big thing you should look at. Distinction, the alcoholic. When we read this part, I want you to identify that there is going to be two different distinctions, and in between the two thoughts is the word or, which I circle the word or. That or tells me that I don't have to be both of these in order to be an alcoholic. Lucky me, I'm a double winner. So let's look at it together. I underlined, if when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely. So we honestly want to, like Bill was talking about, he couldn't live like that anymore. I got to the place where I honestly wanted to not drink anymore because it was causing me so much trouble. And I found that I could stop, but I could not quit entirely and I could not stay stopped. The reason why I cannot quit entirely, I wrote above, cannot quit entirely, I wrote mental obsession. The reason why once I stop, I end up starting again is because my mind tells me the lie, like we just read about in the last chapter, that it's okay to pick up a drink or that what's the use anyhow or just this time or I was being dramatic or maybe I was too young or nobody will find out. That's the mental obsession. So that's either yes or no. It's either when you honestly want to, are you able to stay stopped? Are you able to quit entirely? If the answer is yes, then you don't have a mental obsession. If the answer is no, I cannot quit entirely, then the book tells me that means I'm an alcoholic. But let's look at the second part. Or, so I circle the word or, if when drinking, you have little control over the amount you take, you are probably alcoholic. Above little control over the amount, I wrote physical allergy. So it doesn't say if every time when drinking. It says if when drinking you have little control over the amount you take. Because there were times where I could drink and I could control it on purpose to prove a point. 
And not only was I able to prove that point to whoever wanted me to, I was able to prove it to myself. And I would say, see, whenever my mental obsession talks like like that, just see, see, you're not a real alcoholic because real alcoholics can't go three weeks and you just did. Or you're not a real alcoholic because real alcoholics can't have two drinks and stop and you just did. But when drinking, I have little control over the amount I take. There are many times when I drank where I couldn't control the amount we take. And they talked about earlier on in the book that that is called the physical phenomenon and that it only happens to real alcoholics, that even hard drinkers can drink and get drunk because they make the choice, but real alcoholics don't have a choice, that once we start drinking, we cannot control the amount we're going to take. That's because of physical allergy. So that's yes or no. When you drink, do you have little control over the amount you take? Or the other way I ask the girl or the, whoever I'm working with is, when you drink, is there ever a time when you cannot control the amount you take? Are you ever out of control? Do you ever want to drink a certain amount and then you end up drinking more? If the answer is yes, then it says you are probably alcoholic. I've had people be both. I've also had people be just one. The book doesn't say you have to be both. It says, I underline, if that be the case, so if you identify with one of those, you may, and I make them read this out loud, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. I underline the word only and I looked it up in the dictionary and it means exclusively. So if I identified with these two things, I may be suffering, remember they never tell you outright, I may be suffering from an illness which exclusively can only be conquered by a spiritual experience. And underneath the spiritual experience I wrote through the 12 steps. The only way we know how to get a spiritual experience is through the 12 steps. There are other ways to get a spiritual experience. We just don't offer them an AA. And if you find a way to do it that's not how AA does it, awesome. Next to where I wrote distinction, the alcoholic, I wrote doomed to an alcoholic death. Doomed to an alcoholic death. So remember they just said in the la- all the last pages before that real alcoholics are doomed to an alcoholic death. That we either go in an asylum, we get locked up, or we get covered up. So that's it right there. If you're working with someone and they don't identify with either of those two things, stop working with them. There's no reason to keep going because they can't identify. And if they can't identify with the problem, why would they need to do the solution? And why waste time trying to work with somebody that doesn't need the help? It says, to one who feels he is an atheist, I underline the words atheist. So remember, we just said If this is your problem, if you identify it, the only way you can get free is a spiritual experience. And now we're saying, oh, by the way, if you don't believe in God or a higher power or you're an agnostic and you just don't know or you don't rely on it, such an experience seems impossible. I underlined, but to continue as he is means disaster, especially if he's an alcoholic of the hopeless variety. And I underlined disaster in red. I underlined the next sentence and I wrote on the side two choices. What I love about Alcoholics Anonymous in this book is they're constantly giving me choices. You can go on to the bitter end or you can accept spiritual help. You don't have to not drink. You can drink. Go drink. Or you can try not drinking. Maybe you can try some control drinking. Maybe you can drink and try and stop and see how you do. Maybe you should go a year without drinking and see how you feel or, or don't. The word if is used so many times in chapter seven about working with others because it's always presented as a choice. 
I find that I don't like to be told what to do. I like to be presented with choices and I get to decide. I have three children and I learned that when I went to a parenting class that offering them two choices and they have to be two choices that I'm okay with, they do better because they feel that they have control. Alcoholics do not like to feel out of control, so we don't like to be told we have to do something. We're Even in the most simple way, it can be you can go to the meeting and do your inventory work or you can choose to not do the work and see what happens. It's always presented as their choice. So I underlined to be doomed to an alcoholic death and I underlined that in red, doomed to an alcoholic death. And above it I wrote step one or to live on a spiritual basis. Underneath the spiritual basis I wrote step two are not always easy alternatives to face. And I wrote on the side power of 12 steps. I remember hearing one of my favorite speakers talk about this and being completely relating to, well, how bad of an alcoholic death are we talking about? And I felt like that. I was 19 and a half years old. I was living at a college campus. I was a mess. I was in theater. I believed in rock and roll and living hard and fast and leaving a good-looking corpse. And the idea between... Alcoholics Anonymous, which was my parents' organization, folding chairs, church basements, crappy coffee, and losers, or overdosing and everyone talking about me for like a month or maybe a couple weeks. How bad are we talking about here? Because these two options seem just as crappy. They both felt equally awful. It says, but it isn't so difficult. About half our original fellowship were of exactly that type. So they're saying, like, look, we understand half of us, which means 50 of us of the 100, were agnostic or atheists. So just don't worry about it and we're okay. At first, some of us try to avoid the issue. So we tried to avoid the whole God, higher power thing. Hoping against hope we were not true alcoholics because we didn't want to be true alcoholics because that meant that we had to go to this higher power that we didn't believe in. But after a while, we had to face, I underlined, the fact that we must find a spiritual basis of life. And it read, I underlined, or else. I wrote on the side, happens sober. This this choice that we have to face. Happens sober. And I wrote, need a spirit. Need a spirit. So if we are real alcoholics and we don't drink and we go to meetings and we don't put a solution in place other than not drinking and going to meetings eventually the mental obsession is going to come back. We're going to get restless, irritable, and discontent. We're going to be super uncomfortable with ourselves. And we're going to crave a spirit to change the way we feel. It's either going to be the old spirit that we remember that makes us not feel yucky, which is alcohol, even though it does make us feel yucky. Or we're going to be so desperate and willing that we're going to be willing to try this new spirit, which we can only get through doing this inventory work. And I wrote on the side, my choice. Which, again, we get to empower them and not make them feel like a victim. Not allow them to play that card anymore. Perhaps it is going to be that way with you. But cheer up. Something like half of us thought we were atheists or agnostics. So they said it again in the same paragraph. I underlined, our experience shows that you need not be disconcerted. And next to that I wrote, about your beliefs. So we don't have to be upset because of what we believe. There are people in AA who still are atheists or agnostics who are proud members of meetings where they talk about their atheism and are able to live happy successful lives 
The coolest part about Alcoholics Anonymous is the only thing we have to believe in is something that's bigger than us. So basically, the bottom line is we have to not believe that we're God. We have to believe that something bigger than us is a a stronger power, and whatever works for us is all that we need. It could be nature. It could be the universe. It could be light. It could be a power that we can't define. It could be God. It could be whatever. Whatever works for us. Just perhaps it is going to be that. Oh, I already said that. Um, I underline the next sentence on the bottom paragraph. If a mere code of morals or a better philosophy of life were sufficient, were enough to overcome alcoholism, many of us, I am the top of 45, would have recovered long ago. And I highlighted and circled that word recover because there it is again. They're promising me I can become recovered. I wrote a bunch of stuff here. So kind of write small. On the way top, I wrote mind is problem so again the mind is the problem I wrote solution is higher power so really simply my mind is my problem the way I think is my problem the solution is the higher power which is one and two I wrote we need a solution we need a solution and then I wrote no place else to go and having no place else to go is still the best thing for me No matter how beautiful and big and overwhelming and intense my life gets, I still have no place else to go if I don't stay sober. I wrote on the side, and you do not have to write this if you do not agree with this. I wrote, I lived like an agnostic out there. So I lived like someone who did not rely upon God. I lived like someone who relied upon self. Actually, I lived like an atheist out there a lot. I lived like an agnostic out there. And then I wrote, still can sober. I still can live like an agnostic sober. And one of the members of um, our program who died sober, I was lucky enough to be at a conference where he spoke and he said to make a list of our current fears. And so we all took a minute or two and made a list of our current fears, which are easy to identify. And he said, I would like to challenge you that you are agnostic in those areas. And I had like school, relationships, body stuff, parents, making money, staying sober. And he said, look at that list and tell me, are these areas that you are not including your higher power in? Are these areas that you are pretending or forgetting that your higher power can help you with? Are these areas that you're trying to take care of on your own? And they all were. And I can behave agnostic whenever I forget that I even have God's help. Okay. And I wrote one more thing and then we'll continue. I wrote human power failed. Because we identified that in step one. Human power failed. And then I wrote fellowship alone. I underlined the word alone. Is insufficient. Fellowship alone is insufficient. So if no human power could leave me on my alcoholism... And the fellowship is made up of humans. That means the fellowship alone, just going to meetings and talking to drunks, is not going to be enough. It's helpful. There are vital, super amazing parts about being in the fellowship, about learning from each other, about hearing how we stay sober, about the support we can offer, about the cheering on we can offer each other. But alone, just alcoholics, members of AA, are not enough to keep me sober. It says, we found that such codes and philosophies did not save us. No matter how much we tried, I underline the rest of the paragraph. 
We could wish to be moral. We could wish to be philosophically comforted. In fact, we could will these things with all our might. I kept underlining. But the needed power wasn't there. And I wrote on the side, agnostic. We wanted the power, but it wasn't there because we didn't believe. I underlined our human resources as marshaled by the will, which is my mind, were not sufficient, were not enough. They failed utterly. Every time I've caused harm in someone's life and in mine, it's because I've relied on myself and not on God. The next paragraph I bracketed and I wrote on the top of it, dilemma. And then I wrote the words, we are powerless. I did not know what a dilemma was until someone took me here. I thought when someone says, like, oh, I have a dilemma, they were like, I don't know if I should go to Florida or California for spring break. It's a dilemma. I don't know which one to choose. A dilemma is having to choose between two unattractive choices, unappealing choices. So a dilemma is, for my grandparents who were Holocaust survivors, was should I stay in the ghetto and hope that I don't get killed or should I send our children over the fence and have them run away and hope that they survive? Both of those was unappealing. So for me, faced with alcoholic destruction or sobriety when I'm brand new, it is a dilemma. Because I don't want to be sober and I cannot live the way I was living drunk. I circled the words lack of power. Lack of power, that was our dilemma. So it's our problem. Our problem is we don't have the power. Because if we did, we would never come to AA. The other problem is we don't have the power. Which means we have to go to a power that we don't believe in or don't want to believe in or can't understand how we could ever believe in. It says, I underline, we had to find a power by which we could live. And I circle the word live. Because I don't want to live the way I was living before. It was not living. One of the best things that's not in the big book that I've heard in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous is a description of what it was like when I was out there, which is life without living, death without dying. Life without living, death without dying. So I want if I'm going to be sober and I'm not going to be able to drink and get high anymore, I want to live. And it says it had to be a power greater than ourselves. I underline the word obviously. I love that. Obviously. And I, and I put a star next to the next sentence. But where and how were we to find this power? And next to the word power, I wrote page 55. We're not going to go there right now. I go there when we're taking someone through the book, but right now we're going, we're studying the book and I want to get everything out. But I wrote page 55 because that's where you find the power and we'll get there and we'll talk about it next week or maybe the next week because I'm chatty. Sorry. Um, I underlined the next one, two, next two sentences. Well, that's exactly what this book is about. I circled this book and double underlined the word this. I like that they do that a number of times throughout this book is they identify that we are reading the book that you need. It says, well, that's exactly what this book is about. I underlined its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. I double underlined the word will. And I wrote on the side main object with an arrow over kind of like, you know, how I wrote the distinction between the alcoholic. So the main object of the book we're reading is to enable me to find a power greater than myself that's going to solve my problem. It promises me that. So if we want to know why we need to do the inventory work and the amends, the reason is that's what enables me to find the power, unblocks me. That means we have written a book which we believe to be spiritual. The word spiritual I underlined and I wrote on the side, 
not tangible, so I can't touch it. I can't hold it. I can't purchase it. Not tangible. And then I wrote dealing with the soul. Dealing with the soul. So spiritual is not ta- not tangible. Dealing with the soul. It says we believe to be spiritual as well as moral. The word moral, I underline, and I just wrote right and wrong. So we're not talking about religious morality. We're just talking about the idea of right and wrong. And it means, of course, that we are going to talk about God. Here, difficulty arises with agnostics. Many times we talk to a new man and watch his hope rise as we discuss his alcoholic problem and explain our fellowship. But his face falls when we speak of spiritual matters, especially when we mention God. For we have reopened a subject which our man thought he had neatly evaded or entirely ignored. I wanted to say one thing. I can't, again, I can't remember if I've shared this or not. Whenever I'm working with someone who's brand new to me, I always ask them in our first meeting, does the word God bother you? Because I use it a lot and I'm not going to use it if it bothers you. And I explain to them in very brief terms, it's not like a religious thing. It's just the word I use to call my higher power and my higher power is like amazing, but I don't want to use that word if it's going to cause you to not be able to hear what I'm saying. And I would say out of every 20 times, two people take me up on that and they're like, yeah, I can't stand that word. And so we come up with a different wording for higher power, spirit of the universe, power, whatever, that the person can hear without being blocked off from the message. And that's been a really helpful tool. It says in the next paragraph, we know how he feels. We have shared his honest doubt and prejudice. I underline the words doubt and prejudice. And those two things can block me off from any kind of power. Some of us have been violently anti-religious. I was anti-religious when I got here. To others, the word God brought up a particular idea of him with which someone had tried to impress them during childhood. Perhaps we rejected this particular conception because it seemed inadequate. With that rejection, we imagined we had abandoned the, the God idea entirely. We were bothered with the thought that faith and dependence upon a power beyond ourselves was somewhat weak, even cowardly. We looked upon the world of, upon this world of warring individuals, warring theological systems, and inexplicable calamity with deep skepticism. We looked askance at many individuals who claimed to be godly. How could a supreme being have anything to do with it all? And who could comprehend a supreme being anyhow? Yet in other moments, we found ourselves thinking when enchanted by a starlit night, who then made all this? There was a feeling of awe and wonder, but it was fleeting and soon lost. So we're going to stop right there. But basically that paragraph is talking about how we get really, really lost and stuck in the struggle, the big, big struggle of faith. And we're going to talk about that next week. Thank you so much for your time. Have an amazing week. It's up to you.